Uh, last time I was with you, I preached from Genesis 15. Uh, we talked about God's covenant with Abraham. And this morning we're going to look at uh, another Old Testament text, Leviticus chapter 16. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I chose these chapters uh, from my time with you because they are two of the best examples of seeing the gospel sort of played out in the Old Testament. These texts give us pictures of sacrifice and redemption and grace and atonement. They're glimpses of the way in which the story of the Bible that culminates in Jesus, these are sort of early glimpses of the culmination of that story. So what I want to do this morning is to walk us through Leviticus chapter 16. But before we can do that and understand what's going on there, we've got to understand the big picture of where this text is located in regards to the story of the Bible. So we're going to start all the way at the very beginning, and we're going to walk through sort of the Bible's big story that will help us locate this particular chapter in light of that big story. This book, this story is unified. It's one story across all of of the individual small stories, across all 66 books, some 40 authors, three languages. All of this is unified as God's one overarching plan. And the central theme uh, of that story, I would argue, is God dwelling with his people. God dwelling with his people. The story of the Bible is the way in which God lives amongst his own people. Right from the opening chapters of the Bible, we see God creates people, his, his own people. He sets them in a garden, and the garden is identified as the place where God is. It's the place where these two parties can dwell together. It doesn't take long, though, three chapters in, this dwelling between God and his people is broken. Sin comes and it fractures the relationship So much so that the dwelling place that God has with these people is fractured itself. God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden where he lives. As the story moves along, God chooses one man in his family that we talked about last time, Abraham. And through this one man and through his family, God is going to restore the relationship he has with his people. This dwelling is going to be united once again. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham. Now, this particular family, they find themselves in Egypt. They're enslaved there to the dominant superpower of the day. So all the promises of God and his dwelling with his people seem to be in jeopardy. That we're not in our own place. It doesn't seem like God is with us here in Egypt. They cry out to God, and God hears them, and in his mercy he acts. It's this miraculous display of his awesome power He delivers his people from slavery. He walks them out through the middle of the Red Sea. It's a story of the Exodus. God delivers his people in the Exodus, and he delivers them out of Egypt into a place called Sinai. Sinai is a mountain in the valley surrounding the mountain. And here on this mountain, God makes another covenant with his people that all the promises he's made are still true. They're still alive. God has rescued his people The dwelling place that he has promised is still coming. So he makes a covenant with his people. But there's one problem that we see here in the book of Exodus in this covenant. Israel, this people, they're sinful people. They have polluted themselves with idols. 
And because God is holy, this idolatrous pollution is a problem. God's holiness and Israel's sinfulness are not a recipe for dwelling together. There's a problem there. And so in order for God to dwell with his people, they must build him a place that is a space for him to dwell, sort of uh, distinct from their own space because of their sin. We call this the tabernacle. Israel builds this huge, gigantic, super nice tent. And in this tent, there's spaces that dictate sort of where people can go in relation to God's dwelling. And so you'd have the outer court of the tabernacle, which is this place where everybody can come and they can, and they can worship and they can offer sacrifices. But then there's another space that's called the holy place, and only the priests can go in there, these specialized, you know, distinct guys. And then there's a third space. It's called the most holy place. And only one guy, the high priest, gets to go in there. And even him, he only gets to go one time per year. The reason for that is because that's where God is. There's a a little box uh, that's described in the Old Testament where God's presence is. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is inside the most holy place. So if you're going to walk in there, you had better realize this is where God dwells. This is the, the epicenter of holiness. So the high priest goes in there, and he just once a year. So the dwelling of God with his people is, is happening, sort of. right? He's there in the midst of his people, but he's there through sort of these boundaries, through intermediaries. So as we get into this text this morning in Leviticus 16, here's the great big question the Bible pitches, and the great big question for our time this morning. If God is holy... And if Israel is sinful, how exactly will God dwell with his people again like he did in Eden? How can God and his people dwell together? Now, um, Leviticus 16, I'm actually going to read all of this. Okay, so 34 verses here, so, so buckle up. Um, this is the place, typically, uh, if, if we're all honest with each other here, so every January, right, we, we set out and we say, we're going to read the Bible this year. We're going to track along. And then we get to about this far, and we hit some stumbling blocks, right? These are hard books to read. So let's read these together. Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to read all of it. So starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist And wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering 
But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, 
that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? That is the question we're going to try to answer this morning. So, point number one, God is holy. God is holy. We speak pretty, pretty frequently of God's holiness in a place like this. And for the most part, we know what it means. God is righteous. He is pure. He is free from sin. But holiness is not just a moral character trait. It's a pervasive category. Holiness applies both to persons and to spaces. Persons and spaces. The holiness of God is everywhere in this book, in Leviticus. So let me, let me show you this just briefly here. First of all, if you were to go back to the very first verse of this chapter, uh, Moses here references uh, the death of the sons of Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. He's the high priest. Aaron's got these two boys. And six chapters earlier, Leviticus chapter 10, these two boys think, you know what, our dad is the priest. And so this whole temple and holiness business doesn't really apply to us. They walk into the temple, they offer a sacrifice on the altar, and they're dropped dead on the spot. They give no account to God's holiness, no account to his instructions, and God strikes them dead. He's holy. His procedures and purposes are not to be violated. So first of all, you see this in the death of Aaron's son. Second, Right here in our own text, verse 2 and following, it says here that Aaron, the high priest, is the only guy who is allowed to come into this space to meet with God. It's only one man. And it says here the reason only he goes in, and he has to go in in a certain kind of way, is so that he doesn't die. Right? So imagine you've watched both of your sons die for this reason, and then God comes and says to you, listen, I'm really serious about this. Do not come in here unless you have done so in the proper manner, lest you die like your sons. Third, Aaron's clothing. If you can remember back to Exodus chapter 28, the high priest's clothes are described, and this is this ornate, magnificent outfit the high priest wears. He wears, it's called an ephod. An ephod, it's made of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. He's got these two onyx stones on his shoulders. Engraved on the two stones are the names of the tribes of Israel. He's got chains of gold. He's got a breastplate of precious stones. It's twisted with gold chains. It's this ridiculously ornate and expensive outfit the high priest wears. But if you notice in the reading of our text, verse 4, Aaron is supposed to wear a linen coat, a linen undergarment, a linen sash, and a linen turban. That's a servant's outfit. That's a slave's outfit. That's not the outfit the high priest is supposed to wear. The reason he wears this is because when you walk into the presence of God, you are nothing. Even the high priest is not somebody who's supposed to be honored and respected for his holiness in light of God. When you come to meet with God, all you are is a sinful servant. It's depicted here in Aaron's clothing. Fourth reason we see holiness. 
We see something about incense here. Verse 12. Verse 12 of Leviticus 16. Aaron's supposed to take a censer full of coals from the fire and sweet incense. And he's supposed to bring it before the fire and make this cloud of smoke. Here's the idea. Um, Looking at the presence of God would get you killed. So what you do is you'd create this cloud of smoke that would cover the Ark of the Covenant so you can't see it. God is so holy that even looking at his presence would kill you if you're a sinner. Finally, we know that there is a massive curtain that separates the most holy place from everywhere outside. The Ark of the Covenant sits in this small room and there's this huge ornate decorative curtain that covers this one space from everywhere else. That curtain signifies this reality. God is holy, and we are not. Walking through this curtain means that we have to be holy. On all of these ways, the Bible is picturing for us here in Leviticus 16 that God is unique. He's separate from sinners. He's holy. Holiness is really hard to grasp. Um, Maybe just something like this. Uh, Holiness is kind of like the sun. The sun provides life for us. Like without it, we all freeze to death. It's a good thing. But if you get too close, or if you stare too long without proper protection, the sun is no longer something that's going to be good for you. It's something that's going to harm you. It's not safe without proper protection, proper equipment. And so it is with God's holiness. Entirely good except for those who approach unworthy, those who approach without the proper demeanor. Um, if you have read uh, C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's a really popular book, uh, there's a moment where there's this main character, he's a lion, and there's these other characters, they're, they're kids, and the kids are talking to these beavers, so just, you know, go with the story. And um, one of the children, she's never met Aslan before, and she asks the beaver, she says, is, is he safe? Is he safe to be around? And the beaver laughs at her. And he says, safe? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. The holiness of God is not safe for sinners. But God is good. God is holy. Point number two, sin is serious. Sin is serious. The Bible tells us from Genesis 3 onward that every man and every woman is born guilty. And part of what that does to us is it blinds us from seeing our own sin and our own guilt in realistic and honest fashion. All of us at some level are blinded to our own sinfulness. We sort of inherently think of ourselves as just a little bit less sinful than fill in the blank. We're biased. We don't see the true nature of our sin. If we're honest, we don't really think we're all that bad. After all, we're here at church, aren't we? There's a bunch of other people who aren't here at church this morning. We can't be as bad as them. 
But Leviticus shows us the truth. Sin is far more serious than we realize. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are all the details of the different kinds of offerings that God requires for sin to be atoned in Israel. There are rules for burnt offerings, for sin offerings, for grain offerings, for guilt offerings, for peace offerings. And all of these offerings are mandated and instructed because inevitably Israel will sin. They will bring guilt and shame on themselves. So offering and sacrifice are necessary in the life of Israel's practice. They're for atonement, to make sin paid for. Sin is vast and pervasive. And in Israel, it's also contagious. It's contagious. It's almost like the way sin is described in this book is almost like the flu. Or perhaps like some dangerous virus. As it spreads, as one person sins, it spreads and it pollutes the camp. And not just the camp, right? This is not, we've, we've learned this in the past year if we've learned anything. Uh, viruses don't spread just person to person. They spread on spaces, on stuff. Like we've created all these procedures to not touch the same stuff. Because we know it's not just air and, and people who get infected. It's things. Spaces. Remember we said both holiness and sin are not just moral character traits on persons. They're also spatial. There's spatial dimensions. And so if you look even in our text here, starting in verse 15, from 15 all the way through 19, Moses is giving instruction for the particular spaces that have to be atoned for. Sin is not just inside of you. It's also outside around. And so atonement is not just made for you and your sin, like personally, but also for the space corporately. The sacred space is polluted with sin. Right? So the first thing Aaron does is he walks in, he kills this bull, and he spreads its blood on the mercy seat where God is. He's atoning for this space. He's atoning for his own sin in this space. He does the same thing in the tent of the meeting. All of this space needs cleansing. Even at the very end of the text, all the people who participate in this ceremony, they all have to go take a bath. They all have to get rid of their clothes to purify themselves because they've been around sin. Even the goat, even the things that have sin on them are cast out into the wilderness. Sin is pervasive. It's both internal and external. And the last thing here to talk about with sin, it is not simply a mistake. Sin is not portrayed as these accidental moments where you you forgot the rules and so you just didn't know and and you, you made a mistake. No, sins require death for atonement. The atonement that takes place in this chapter is by the death of an animal. Sin is serious. So if God is holy, and if sin is this serious and this pervasive, then how is it possible that this sinful people in their sinful space 
can dwell again with this holy God. Point number three. God is gracious. God is gracious. We come to verse 20 in our text. As you get to verse 20, the spaces in the tabernacle have been atoned for. Aaron has taken the blood of these, of these animals and he's spread that blood in the tent of meeting, on the altar, on the mercy seat. These physical spaces are being atoned for. And now in verse 20, Aaron comes to the second goat in this ceremony. The first goat they kill for the sake of the spaces. His blood goes into the space for atonement. And now he comes to the second goat. And our text tells us this is the goat for Azazel. Okay, so just a, a brief note about this because it probably is unfamiliar a word. Um, I'm no Hebrew expert, and so I'm giving you my guesses here, okay? So uh, there you go. This word, Azazel, uh, you've got a few options as to what this means. Some people have said historically that this refers to a, like a demon. Um, not a whole lot of weight there. The very next chapter, there's this explicit prohibition that Israel is never supposed to offer sacrifices to demons. So that one's probably out. A second option is that the word means a rocky place. And so the goat is being sent out of the camp into this, this place name called Azazel. Maybe. Either way, the word is denoting for us that this second goat, the live goat in this ceremony, is meant to be cast out. It's meant to be in a different space outside of the camp. So let's look at verse 20 here. Verse 20. When Aaron has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting the altar, remember those spaces, he shall present the live goat. What do you do with the live goat? 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. 22. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Aaron lays his hands on this goat, confesses the sins of the people of Israel, transfers those sins onto the goat, and he sends the goat out in the wilderness never to be seen again. So, just brief pause here. If you and I were to be participating in the Day of Atonement ceremony, you come to this moment. What would that be like? Right? So somebody's standing up here. They've got their head on the live goat. And now they're about to confess all of your sins out loud. What would he say? Perhaps Aaron would confess your sins, my sins of Cheating and lying and lusting and idleness and idolatry, gossip or envy or jealousy or slander, perhaps sins of pornography or stealing, unethical business practice, immorality, greed, perhaps disobedience to parents, disproportionate anger at our children, unaffectionate worship, uncharitable speech, 
Maybe we're quick to criticism and judgment. Maybe we're quick to boasting. Probably confess a list like that. Imagine having to sit in full exposure with all of your sin. It's a heavy moment. And in that moment, as you feel the overwhelming weight of your guilt, you can then imagine all of those sins confessed on this goat, led out of the wilderness, gone forever. So the Day of Atonement, this moment is a picture of what we hear later in Psalm 103. Let me read this to you. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The Day of Atonement is the picture of Psalm 103. As far as the wilderness is from the most holy place, so far does God separate us from our sin. The scapegoat is gone. And with it, your sins. This grace, right? Unearned, unmerited, undeserved mercy from God. But then you skip ahead a couple of thousand years and you get to the book of Hebrews. The ending of the book of Hebrews, the last several chapters, is sort of an exposition of the Day of Atonement. And so you read from Hebrews chapter 13. And the writer says this, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. You know that goat that atones for your sin? That goat never actually atoned for your sin. It's a representation It's a type. It's an example of the one who would finally and fully atone for your sin. This lamb. Jesus is the true scapegoat. He has carried our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He is the one whose blood cleanses us of our defilement and our pollution. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he is the one who entered once for all into the holy places. Get this. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What you guys used to do in bringing these animals into the tent, you used to do this every year, Now, this guy brings his own blood once for all and secures for us eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness of sin. Jesus, in his death in our place as our sacrificial lamb, he is this second goat 
He is the one who cleanses us from pollution and from sin. It's as if on Good Friday, all those who believe in Jesus, who've placed our hands on Jesus' shoulders, our sins have been transferred onto him, and he is sent outside the camp bearing our sins. Good Friday is the day of atonement. Not only this, but this day of atonement in Leviticus 16 is a yearly process. Year after year after year, you enact this ceremony, which tells you that year after year after year, your sins are piling up and you have to pay for them again. Atonement has to be made again. But Christ's sacrifice is once for all never to be repeated. Once for all, full and final forgiveness, full and final redemption. And maybe the most vivid of, of all of these things, if you remember all the way at the end of the Gospels, when Jesus breathes his last breath, he says it is finished, he offers up his spirit. The next thing the Gospel writers tell us happened is across the way in the temple, the curtain tears down the middle. That is the moment that solves our big question, right? This question of sinful people dwelling with holy God is solved in the hero of the Bible, in Jesus. This curtain is the symbol that separates God and his dwelling from us and our dwelling. And at the death of Jesus, the curtain is torn. That those who have placed their faith in Jesus now have full, unhindered access to God. Because of Jesus. The answer of the, of the question of the Bible is solved in the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the one who brings sinners into dwelling with God. And finally, we see the ultimate outcome of this at the very end of our Bible, Revelation 21. John says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And then John says this, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is the place where God and man meet. It's the place of worship. And in the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple because the Lamb is the temple. We now meet with God through Jesus. The dwelling place of God is with man. Jesus has atoned for sin once and for all, and that fact changes everything. It changes our relationship to God, it changes our desires, and it changes how we live. So as, just as I close here, let me offer you three points of application that sort of come out of this truth that Jesus has cleansed us from sin and given us access to God. So I mentioned earlier, the book of Hebrews is sort of the, 
the New Testament's way of applying the Day of Atonement. And so I see no better way than just to follow what Hebrews says here for application. So number one, because Jesus has cleansed us from sin, we should draw near to God with confidence. We should draw near to God with confidence. This is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We often take our access to God for granted. It's something that feels so normal to us that it's no big deal anymore. We're lazy in prayer sometimes. Sometimes we are dull in worship. Sometimes we are full of affection, but for the wrong things. But we have uninhibited, unbroken access to the God of the universe. All because of Jesus. And therefore, we ought to approach him boldly, frequently, in prayer, in his word, amongst his people. We are to draw near to God with confidence. I've always been encouraged by, a little bit encouraged, a little bit convicted, a lot of bit convicted, um, uh, by a guy named George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller was a a 19th century Christian guy living um, in, in London. And I would encourage you um, to pick up, there's a, there's a little autobiography of George Mueller. Uh, it is really stirring. Um, but he talks about how his, his secret to prayer uh, was always that he prayed with full expectation that God actually would answer. So if I asked you this, right? If God answered every single one of your prayers in the last week, would anybody have any idea? What would change if God actually had answered every single one of your prayers in the last seven days? Would anything change? We ought to approach God with confidence because of the work of Jesus. We typically end our prayers with something like, in Jesus' name. Um, as a kid, to be honest with you, I thought that was kind of like the, the tagline to let you know it's over. You know, like, this is now the end. Close it. Amen. Right? It's not a tagline. It's not a throwaway phrase. It absolutely matters that you say this because we only pray based on the mediating work of Jesus. Right? The only way through that curtain to God's place is if the blood of Jesus has atoned for our sins and that curtain has indeed been torn. We pray based on the work of Jesus. So draw near to God with confidence. Application number two. We should encourage one another to love and good works. If Jesus has cleansed us from sin, we should encourage one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
One of the greatest benefits in the Christian life is Christian community. Is life together. When Jesus saved us from sin, he also saved us to a family, to one another, to a local body. And so through the blood of Jesus, we have been embedded into the lives of each other. And because of that, we ought to stir up one another to love and good works. We ought to help each other more consistently and more closely follow Jesus. So we spur one another on to holy living. We help one another fight sin. We pray for one another. We're consistent here. Right? I have, um, so, so as you are in this, this uh, transition time searching for a pastor, um, one of the temptations is to perhaps lax on this gathering. I've got to tell you, it will be fatal to your Christian witness and testimony. This moment, the gathering of the body of believers here, this local one, is vital. The text says, do not neglect to meet together. Meet together, encourage one another, right? I've always just, you know, found this striking. When you come and you sit and you sing and you pray, it's not just for you. You sing and you pray also for the per- people around you. Right, so I'm sitting up here in the front this morning. You have no idea what my week has been like. I have no idea what your week has been like. But when I can hear you sing behind me, it encourages my soul. That while I have these doubts about the things that we're singing maybe not being true because of the week I've had, I can hear resounding in my ears. That there's a whole bunch of other people who know these things to be true. Do not neglect this gathering. This is the moment to encourage, to spur one another on to love and good works, to fight sin. Application number three. We should tell the story of the scapegoat. We should tell the story of the scapegoat. Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, those bodies are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The story of this scapegoat in Leviticus 16 is the story of the gospel. It's the story of how sins are atoned for, how guilt and shame are covered, how righteousness is imputed. Jesus has endured the punishment we deserved and has given us righteousness in exchange. His blood has cleansed us from sin. It's the greatest story in all the world. And yet, for those who have not yet heard this story or don't yet believe the things that are in this story, the separation that existed for all of us will exist for them forever. And we have the news that can end their separation with God. We have the story. 
So the text here in Hebrews 13 says, Jesus went outside the city gate into the wilderness in order to sanctify people through his own blood. If that's true, and if you are in Jesus, then the mission that he had is also now given to you. That you and I now are given the mission to go outside of this room into places near and far and to tell the story of what Jesus has done. That while people are stuck in their sins, there is one who can free them from sin. That while guilt and shame cover them, there is one who can uncover them and give them grace instead. We ought to go outside of this room, outside of the camp, bearing the story, telling the world of how their sins can be forgiven, how the scapegoat provides atonement for them. Something that we can do in community. And so Oscar prayed this morning, and as we leave this room, we do not leave empty, we do not leave purposeless. We leave pushing each other out of these walls into the relationships and jobs and communities that each of us live in. And we do so all bearing the same story, all bearing the same testimony and witness. That there is one who can save from sin and one who can give joy forever. So this week, tell someone about Jesus. Tell them that what he has done for you can also happen for them. Let's pray together. Father, we are eternally grateful that you have given your son in our place to cleanse us from sin. We have felt the separation. We have felt the reality of our sin and how it has broken our lives. And we've also felt the mercy and the grace that you have given in Jesus to heal us from sin, to free us from death. And Father, we pray that we would be filled with affection, both for you and for the lost, in such a way that we would be spurred on to share this story, to share the gospel with those who have yet to be found in Jesus. We pray that in so doing that you would save many. Father, I pray that from the witness of members in this room, that you would save people all over this city, all over the globe, for the sake of your glory. We pray all this through Christ. Amen.